What we are back to this morning is something that we left the middle of February. <clears throat> Been involved in uh, a many month, uh, thanks Ash, study, actually a couple of years study through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We've been walking through this greatest letter ever written, just verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Took a little detour in the middle of February, but now we're coming back to this letter, and we have arrived at the end of chapter 6, the last two verses of Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open and put your finger there. But since we've been gone for 10 weeks from that study, let me just take a A few minutes here, I believe important minutes to review, to remind you of where we have been through the months of our study through this letter. What Paul did in Romans chapter 1, after his opening greetings, is in verse 16 and 17, he gave us his thesis statement, a statement that he was going to unpack and validate throughout the rest of this letter, throughout the rest of the 16 chapters in this letter. So he begins in chapter 1, 16 and 17 with the truth. The truth about righteousness coming by faith. Not by works, not by man's effort, but solely and exclusively by faith. And then what he does in the rest of chapter 1 and down through all the way to chapter 4 is that he unpacks that truth of justification by faith. He explains how that happened. That Jesus Christ is the one that enabled that to happen and our desperate need and guilt and sin and what Jesus has done through his atoning work on the cross to solve that dilemma. And then in chapter 5, having really stated in detail the doctrine of justification by faith, he begins to talk about the results of that justification. Results like, now being justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ that we are standing in this grace. And he just identifies several results that come into the believer's life as a result of that justification. Then what he does when he comes to chapter 6 is he begins what is going to be a two-chapter parenthetical statement. He appears to get kind of off track of his subject, but it's a planned detour. And what he does is he finally and fully weaves that in, and we'll see that as we finish up chapter 7. He'll come right back at the beginning of chapter 8 to where he left off in the end of chapter 5. So this two verses, these two chapters, 6 and 7, become this parenthetical statement. And here's what he does in chapter 6. It's critical to remember or understand this if you were not here 
so that you can grasp fully the truth that we're going to talk about today. Chapter 6, he opens up with a statement. And the statement is an identification of what some of the individuals who heard him preach this message of free grace, the conclusion that they drew from it. And the conclusion, let me just read Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's what some were concluding or some were saying that Paul's preaching about free grace coming only through faith would do. It would cause people to just continue in their sin. Or people would say, well, if that's true, if grace is free and if it is so secure, like he said over and over and over again in chapter 5, if it is so free and so secure, man, I can just do whatever I want as a believer. I can just continue in sin. In fact, if grace increases when sin increases, man, let's sin some more. And actually, by doing that, we'll help grace increase. And so what Paul does in chapter 6 is he refutes that gross, horrendous lie and deception. He attacks that thing and profoundly and systematically he shows over and over and over again down through chapter 6 why that conclusion is so wrong. Just in the first half alone, he is repetitively redundant about one great truth that flies in the face of that wrong conclusion. He states the truth in chapter 2, and this statement, this truth, is absolutely critical to understanding Romans chapter 6. It is like a master key to Romans chapter 6. It is the key that will help you unlock all of the supporting truths that complement this truth down through this chapter. The statement is this, that the believer, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, here's what happened to them. They died to sin. They died to sin. And what he does is he makes the comparison. He makes the connection that when a believer is justified, when a believer accepts Christ and is saved, they are united with Christ. And in that uniting, what happens is that just as Jesus died to sin, the believer has died to sin. Not the believer will die to sin sometime in the future, but at the moment, error is tense in the Greek, the verb is. At that moment, at that specific time, something happened in that moment 
that was absolutely completed in that moment and that will never be done again after that moment. And what happened is they died to sin. So what does that mean? If that is the critical master key to understanding this chapter, what does that mean? Well, it's related to Christ. And let me, let me draw out the truth by using this phrase. Jesus died for sin. That's true. Jesus died for your sin. He took his sin, your sin upon himself, my sin upon himself, and he died. The penalty, paid the penalty, died for that sin on the cross. But that's not all that he did. He did what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. He died to sin. That's something different than dying for sin. Here's what it means when it says that Jesus Christ died to sin. You might remember this from months ago when we were walking through Romans chapter 6, verse 2. That Jesus Christ, he who had, who was and is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, second member of the Trinity, he who had lived an eternal existence in heaven throughout all eternity past, decided, chose for a Slice of time between two eternities to enter into the realm of humanity. To actually leave heaven and come down into this earth. And to come down in a very specific way. Scripture talks about it as the incarnation. And what that means is this. That Jesus Christ made himself nothing. Philippians chapter 2. He actually took the very nature of a human being and he married the human nature with his divine nature he became fully man even though he remained fully god and he stepped down into the realm and lived within this realm on earth as a god man and when he did that he did it fully He did it completely. And what this realm down here is, it is a realm controlled by sin, controlled by the devil and his henchmen. It is the the kingdom, Scripture says, the the king of the power of the air is over this realm. This realm is a realm in which sin reigns and enslaves. This is a realm that sin reigns unto death. And so what Jesus did is he, for a slice of time between two eternities, he entered into this realm fully and completely. He subjected himself to come down into this realm where sin ruled and sin reigned. In sin's dominion, living under the tyranny of sin. Not that he sinned, but he fully entered it as a 100% human. That was a brand new relationship to sin than he had ever had before. 
having existed eternally as the second member, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father in heaven forever. He had never been in that kind of a relationship and realm of sin, but he entered it willingly, fully, completely for a very specific purpose to deal with it. And then he died for sin, but when he died, Scripture says, and what Paul says here, and it says elsewhere in Scripture, is that he died to sin, meaning this, that temporary relationship that he entered into was ended. Never again would he be in that relationship to sin again for out the rest of eternity. It was just something he entered into and subjected himself to for a period of time. But when he died to sin, it was over. He was buried to that reality. And he rose to a brand new existence, one that he had before with the Father. And what Paul says is this. Hard to grasp, but the truth is so profound for you and me. What Paul says is this in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, that when you accepted Christ as your Savior, what happened is you died with Christ to sin, just as he died. That the relationship that you have lived in throughout your entire life prior to that, was sin. Under sin's rule, under sin's reign, under sin's authority, a slave to sin, in subjection to sin, under the tyranny of sin, that when you got saved, that was ended, broken, severed, completely, forevermore. That's your reality. That's the understanding of what it means that when you were justified, you died to sin. You died in the death of Christ to sin. Fully, completely, forever. The tense again there in the Greek is that that happened in a moment of time. It was fully completed in that moment and it is a, something that will never be repeated again. It is a once and for all time reality going forward. That's the truth of all those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Now, What I want to do is I want to bring you then to Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Because Romans 6, 19 is the reasonable conclusion, the reasonable response. Instead of the response of verse 1 that says, Man, let's go on sinning so that grace may increase. Or verse 15, which says the same thing. He did it twice in that chapter. He said it once at the beginning and then refuted it 
in the first half, and then he said the same thing again in verse 15 and goes on to refute it in the second half of the chapter. But then in verse 19, he comes to the command and says, instead of you doing that, instead of you increasing in sin, now that you're saved and secure, here's what you should be doing. Here's the reasonable response. Verse 19, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Present the members of your body, this, these things that you see right here, the elements of your body, present them to God as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. That what you should be doing based upon who you are, based upon the reality of what is happening to you, the only reasonable thing for you to do is that you would live as a slave for God. That the members of your body would be living out the dictates of righteousness in an increasingly growing spiritual, being sanctified life, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that a reasonable response is this. That if we died to sin, why are we still struggling with it? If it's true, Brad, that I died to sin when I got saved, why do I get up every morning and have to fight the battle if I have been completely freed from that? And the reason is, is that you have a mortal body. You have a mortal body. Your soul is saved. Your spirit is saved. You're righteous and justified in your soul and spirit. In fact, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms if you're saved right now. It's your reality. That's who you are. That'll never change. But right now, you live right here in this world with the clothes of death on, with this mortal body. It's falling away. It's deteriorating, and one day it's going to be changed for an imperishable body. But right now, in this world, you're carrying it around, and you're still struggling with its connection to this sinful world where sin reigns in its power and tyranny. And so the battle with the mortal body is still fought. But the reality is that mortal body is not you. That mortal body that's still connected to the struggles of sin, it is not who you are any more than the clothes that I'm wearing is who I am. They're just temporary. They're going to fade away. They're going to be discarded just like your body is going to be and changed for a new imperishable immortal body. But what happens right now is that the enemy wants to feed you a line. He wants to tell you a lie. 
In fact, it's the only way that he can get at you. Here's why. You're no longer in his kingdom. You are now rescued from the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the son that God loves. You have a brand new existence. You're in a brand new location. You have a brand new relationship to sin. You're not under its bondage and tyranny and authority anymore. But what the enemy does is he gets over here or he stands over here in the kingdom of darkness and he shouts over to you. And he shouts over his lies. He shouts over his deception. He knows that he cannot touch you in the kingdom of light. He knows it. He knows this truth better than you know it. He fully knows the truth of Jesus that said this. You shall know the truth and what? It'll set you free. That doesn't just mean salvation. That also means the truth of who you are will be the key to you walking in the freedom of who you are. But he wants to lie to you. He wants to shout out the deception. He wants to give you, get you to believe the lie. And here's the lie he wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that you have to sin. He wants you to believe that you are hopeless when it comes to fighting the daily battle with sin. He wants you to think it's just the way it was before you were justified, before you were united with Christ and died to sin and were buried with Christ and raised to new life. He wants you to think that you are still living in your old reality. He knows that you're not. Oh, he knows that you're not. But he knows that you're gullible to the lie. And so the only way for you to protect yourself from his lie is you got to get this truth and you got to get it inside you. You got to let it get deep-seated. You got to let it soak in and get saturated. You got to let it get down in your knower, right? You know what your knower is? It's when you really grasp and understand and embrace and believe that what God said about you in his word is true. And the truth is that when you accepted Christ, you died to sin that you are completely taken out of the relationship that you had to sin, that you were put under a brand new relationship. You no longer have the master of sin. Those chains are broken. You're no longer in bondage and in slavery to sin. You're no longer in the prison of sin, locked away in the castle of the enemy in the kingdom of darkness. That's, you've been busted out. You've been busted out. You've been rescued. The Lord on a white horse rode in and he stormed the castle and he ripped the bars off your cell and he tore the chains and the shackles off you and he threw you on his horse and he took you all the way from the kingdom of darkness and transferred you in to the kingdom of the son that he loves and you are there secured. You are there forever. That's going to be your eternal reality. 
Hallelujah. But he wants to shout the lies. You're still in bondage. So what Paul is doing here throughout all of this chapter is he is teaching us the key to holy living. And the key to holy living is that you understand who you are in Christ. You understand what it means to be united to Christ. You are buried with Him. You are baptized into His very life. I don't mean the baptism the water baptism, that's a symbol. But you are baptized right into his very life. That's your existence now. It's your reality now. You know what the enemy's got? He's just got a roar. That's all he's got. He doesn't have any more teeth if you're a believer. His claws have been plucked out. All he's got is a lion with a roar. He can't touch you. He can just deceive you. And the way that you protect yourself and live in the victory, the way that you do what verse 19 says, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, is that you first and foremost understand what is true about you. And you will know the truth and it will set you free. Then what Paul does in the final two verses is that he gives us, as if he hasn't already given us enough over and over again, he gives us the reasons why we should obey the command of verse 19. He tells us why we should present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And here's what he says in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Do you see what he's doing here? He's doing the same thing again. He takes us right back to the reality of our identity. He says, here is what has happened to you and here is who you are. It's the key to living in victory is understanding, embracing, really believing the truth. That is the only foundation from which you can live in victory over sin. So he talks about this change that has taken place, but I want you to look carefully at what the change is. Verse 22. Look at the nature of this change. First of all, he says, but now you have been set free. From sin. I want you to notice the extent of the change. The extent or the degree of the change. Is this a subtle change? Is this just kind of a mild tweak in your character? Maybe a, a few actions that are a little different now? No, this is a profound change. This is a monumental change. This is a categorical 
absolute change. And the change is this, if you read the verses. You have went from being a slave to sin to being the slave of God. There is nothing greater than that. That is complete and across the board. They are absolutely, utterly, totally, diametrically opposed to each other. And that is the change that has taken place at the moment of salvation. You have been set free. Not you will be set free at some time in the future. No, you have been set free. It's it's a reality the moment you got saved. Secondly, notice the means of the change. The means of the change. What accomplished it? It says, you have been set free. This is not a change that has come about by the work of the individual that has changed. This is not a change that has even come about by the decision or the will of the individual that has underwent the change. It is something that has been done to the individual. You have been set free. You have, later in the verse, you have become the slave of God. This is what was done to you. The point Paul is getting at here is so consistent with everything that he has been saying in all the rest of Scripture, and it is this. You cannot accomplish the change. You cannot do anything to change yourself. You are dead in your sins prior to salvation. And what can a dead person do? What can a dead person see? What can a dead person hear? What can a dead person believe? The answer is nothing. You are absolutely helpless and impotent and hopeless. But what happens in justification is that God quickens you. He wakes you out of death so that you can see and hear. And he brings the revelation of the truth of Jesus to your eyes and to your ears. And then through that truth, he plants faith in your heart because Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then when you are now alive and can see and can hear and the truth plants faith in you and you believe at that moment, you're justified. It's all the work of God. It is all the work of God. The means of the change is that God has accomplished the change. Third, what about the effect of the change? It says here that they are freed from sin. It's not something, again, that we need to accomplish. Now that you have been justified, free yourself from sin. No, you're freed. The moment you are saved, you are freed. It happens in that instant. It is an accomplished reality. Guilt of sin is ended. Debt of sin is paid. Pains of sin are broken. Power of sin is defeated. It's categorical. Again, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to shout out to you. You're still in bondage. You can't live the way that you want to live. 
oh, one day, yeah, maybe one day when you get to heaven, but it's just going to be defeat after defeat here. That's a lie. That's a lie. The reality is you have been freed. You see, the way it works is that you have to know the truth and it's the truth when you know it and it gets seated down in your knower and you believe it and embrace it. I mean, really believe it that the freedom starts to come. Let me give you another verse that shows this truth. Here's the truth you need to believe. Right here today, here it is if you're a believer. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you see? That's exactly what we're talking about here. Paul says in writing the letter to the Galatians, look. You don't have to live. You're not in this kingdom of darkness under this rule and reign anymore. Christ set you free. Why? So that you could live free over here in the kingdom of light. Why would you want to submit yourself again? Nobody can submit you You submit yourself to the bondage of sin when you believe the lie. You see, it's the truth that sets you free. Not only have you been set free, you've become slaves to God. Middle part of verse 22. Become slaves to God. Here it is again. Here it is again. Identity. He's telling you who you are. Key to sanctification. Key to your growth in the Christian life. He's telling you who you are. Here's what has happened to you. At salvation, you became a new person, a brand new creation. And that new creation right here is defined as a slave of God. What a... I mean, just think about that analogy. Think about that analogy based upon... Chapter 6, verse 19. What are we supposed to do? We are to present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That's what a slave of God does. He takes the members of his body and he presents them to God in slavery to obedience to his truth, into growing Christ-likeness. He doesn't do what verse 1 says. Remember, that's the argument of the chapter. He doesn't say, let us go on sinning so that grace may increase. Or verse 15, let's go on sinning because we're not under law, but under grace. Hey, man, we are free and secure. Let's just live it up in sin right now. Paul says, look, you're a slave of God. How in the world could you live that kind of a life? What do you think your master thinks of that? 
He who gave his son to buy you back, to free you and release you and give you victory and forgiveness and mercy and power. And you want to take that and go live as if you were still in bondage. That's a gross misuse of the grace of God. See, it's really when we know who we are that we are positioned to live as we should. Now notice finally the result of the change, the ultimate result of the change. Verse 22c, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. I want you to see three things about the fruit here. You see it? The fruit. And then what's the next two words? The fruit you get. You get it. You're saved. You get it. It's a part of the deal. It's a part of the package. It's not the fruit you accomplish. It's the fruit you get. Meaning... The fruit is the byproduct of the reality of your salvation. Let me say that another way. Do you remember when Jesus was using the the tree and its fruit as an illustration? And he was saying, a good tree does not produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Here's the point. Here's the point. The fruit on the tree points back to the root of the tree, right? The fruit on the tree points to the reality of what the root of the tree is. Don't get that backwards. The fruit of the tree doesn't produce the root of the tree. The root of the tree produces the fruit of the tree. Meaning, if you're truly saved, there will be fruit. There will, I don't mean perfection. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect like Christ. But I am saying that if you're saved, a change had to happen. A change that comes all the way to the external. If no change has ever happened, I'd be looking real hard and close at the reality of salvation and what God's word says and introspective of am I really in the faith? Because the fruit is something that you get. And what does the fruit lead to? It leads to sanctification. Second thing about the fruit, it leads to sanctification. Sanctification is you growing spiritually. It's you becoming more like Jesus Christ, growing in the character of Christ. It's going to be a process. It's not perfection. It's direction. But it is a process that you are involved in. If you are saved, you can have times of stepping off the path and going left or right or falling back or falling down. But you do that temporarily and the 
Spirit of God, he who began a good work in you, carries on to completion what he started. There is a process taking place if you're truly saved, a process of growth. And then it says that the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We're going to talk about eternal life in the next verse. But don't misread what that just said. It doesn't say that sanctification, if you are faithful to the growing, what you get is eternal life. That would be salvation by works. This says that you get the fruit And what it accomplishes, the byproduct in your life, is sanctification. And then let me tell you how it's going to end, Paul says. It's going to end in your eternal life. It's not something you're getting by earning it. It's just the reality that if you're saved, what's going to happen is that there will be change. There will be fruit. There will be a process of sanctification. And in the end, you are going to live eternally with God in heaven forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, now let's talk about verse 23. This is one of the great verses of Scripture. Well-known, popular verse of Scripture. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I want to show you here is that Paul takes a couple sets of words and sets them up in comparison to one another in contrast. He says, wages of sin, and he contrasts that with gift of eternal life. Two things that are completely opposite. Wages of sin, gift of eternal life. And then the second contrast is death and eternal life. So wages is to gift as death is to eternal life. Wages is to gift as death is to eternal life. Let's take the first one. Wages and free gift. The word used here for wage is the word apsonia, the Greek word apsonia. And it is a word that referred to a soldier of Rome's wage that he was paid for the service rendered to his country as a soldier also is properly translated as ration. See, a soldier, and there was a great commitment there, a soldier uh, put their very life at risk often. They gave their time, they gave their strength in service to their country in battle. And what would be paid to them as a wage or a ration was what they deserved. That's the idea here. What they deserved for the service rendered. It is a reasonable recompense for the service rendered. It's not a, an inflated payout. It is, matter of fact, it was quite meager. This is just what you as a soldier deserve. You at least deserve this for the work that you do, the service that you render. The The contrast there is another word used for free gift, and the word is charisma. And the word charisma referred to an unmerited, unearned, undeserved free gift that the emperor would give 
to soldiers occasionally, to the army. Uh, The emperor would do this on special occasions, like his birthday or an anniversary to his coronation. Soldier, the, the emperor would just out of his goodness, he didn't owe them anything. This was not a payout for what they did. But in times of celebration or a special occasion, he would just grant this charisma gift, this free undeserved gift out of his goodness to the army. Paul says, that's the contrast. A earned wage or ration and a free undeserved gift of grace. Here's the point. Please get this. It's a point that many struggle with. The point of the contrast is to show number one that no one goes to heaven that deserves to go to heaven. That no one earns their way. Every single person who crosses the threshold into heaven does so by the free, unmerited, unearned, gracious, lavish gift of God through Jesus Christ. But that's only half the point. Here's the hard thing for many to grasp. No one goes to hell except those who deserve to go to hell. Who have earned as their wage the just recompense of the reality of who they are in rebellion against God, in refusal to humble themselves and accept the free and gracious gift of Jesus Christ, but instead remaining in their sin, eventually dying in their sin and standing before the holy God of the universe, the just judge. The point is this, that what they get in condemnation to hell is exactly what They deserve. No one crosses over into the threshold of hell that didn't deserve it by their own demerit. That's the point. No one gets into heaven by deserving it. No one goes into hell without not deserving it. He says here, The gift of God is eternal life, but the wages of sin are death. That statement, the wages of sin are death, that word death does not mean annihilation. It is an absolute misuse of Scripture. You cannot find that anywhere in Scripture. The concept of death as consistently shared through Scripture is separation from God. 
separation from all that God is, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his majesty, all of his preserving grace, all of his keeping you back from going the way that your sins would lead you to. Ultimately, hell is hell because it is without God. Even if you are unsaved, you have no idea of what it means to be totally without God and his persevering grace that's all around you. An existence void of him, that's hell. And it's not annihilation. It is an eternal, unchangeable reality. That's what it means when it says the wages of sin is death. Quote here from Charles Simeon, great man of God of another generation. Just listen to this quote. To those who equate this death with annihilation, they do so in word alone and do not in any way annihilate the truth of a real literal hell. Now, that is harsh news But because I love you, I must tell you the truth. Don't be deceived. There is a real literal hell. And the just fair recompense, wage that we guilty and condemned deserve is hell. You see, It's interesting here that Paul, please look at it carefully. Paul does not say that the wages of sins is death. He says the wages of sin is death. It's the reality of who we are that sentences us as guilty. The sins are the byproduct of who we are. If we don't have Christ, we are guilty in Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, down to the end of the chapter. It's our reality. We are connected to Adam as our federal head. And in his sin, we all were condemned and we're all guilty. And if you say, wow, Brad, that's harsh. Why would we be condemned in somebody else's sin? Here's why. It's so that you could be saved in someone else's righteousness. You see, it's consistent. It is the guilt and condemnation that comes from our connection to Adam, our first head, that sets up and provides the way for our freedom from sin and the gift of righteousness to be ours through our second head, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we put our faith in him. It's the way God has set it up to work so that he could have a way to save us. He is consistent. He is fair. He is just. Without Jesus, the wages of your sin is eternal separation from God in hell with Jesus. 
the free gift that is yours is eternal life. What is eternal life? I can't in any way adequately unpack this. I wish that I could, but I can tell you a few things. I can tell you this. Yes, it is an eternal existence beyond this existence here in this world, but what it is beyond that is, first of all, it's the knowledge of God. Jesus Christ said this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, Eternal life is directly related to the knowledge of God. Transfer that into a future eternal existence. Here's what's going to be true of you. If you are saved, if you are justified, you are going to be in a relationship of truly knowing and growing in your knowledge of God throughout all eternity. You're going to grow more and more in your understanding of his glory and his majesty and his goodness and his greatness and his grace. It's going to be heaven because that's where God is and you're going to be getting to know him more and more all the time throughout an eternal existence. Here's another truth about heaven and eternal life. It's a place where you get a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness that never fades. Here's what that means. And you... Hoping somebody here will be excited about this reality. It means this, that you are never again going to have to fight the battle with sin. You're going to get a crown of righteousness that never fades. You're going to live in perfect righteousness for, throughout an eternal existence forever as an immortal created in the image of God and redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to that. Hallelujah to that. You're not going to have to get up every day and fight the battle that you fight every day here. In fact, you're not going to have to get up at all because there's no night there. You're never going to get tired there. You're never going to get sleepy or fat or hungry or But here's the other reality. Not only do you get a crown of righteousness so that you never have to fight the battle with sin anymore, you don't even have to deal with the pain and the remnants of sin anymore. The pain and destruction and loneliness and heartache that sin, even if you don't commit it, but other people do, or sin that you committed in the past, that's consequences that are still punishing you today. That's forever gone. Never again are you going to feel that. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more heartache. You're going to live in endless, perfect bliss and joy for out an eternity forward. But then here's the greatest truth. Here's the greatest truth about eternal life. The greatest truth about eternal life is this aspect of the glory of God. Jesus Christ said this in John 17, prayed this to his father. Father, the time has come. He was knowing it's time for his crucifixion. He was going to go through, be crucified, be resurrected, and then he would be glorified with the father again in his presence as he had been for out an eternity past. And he said, Father, the time has come. Glorify, 
glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And then later in that chapter, he says, and I want you to give my glory to my people. And the Bible teaches that when we see Jesus on the final day, we are going to become like him, having seen him as he is. Folks, I don't understand that. I just know one little grain of sand on that great continent of truth that I have seen. But I'm telling you, the grain that I've seen is incredible. The glory that is going to be yours and mine as followers of Christ for out an eternal future. Oh, that is heaven indeed. And the last thing I want to say about this eternal life and bring this to a conclusion is this. Although that eternal life has a, has a reality throughout an endless future, it begins the moment you are saved, not the moment you step across the threshold into heaven. Eternal life is the reality of the believer at the moment of justification. That is what Paul has been teaching over and over and over again here. It's who you are. You are eternally saved when you are justified. That's your reality right now. You're going to be experiencing it in a more perfect, fuller way then, but you're living it right now. And what that means is that you don't have to live over here. You're not in this kingdom over here anymore. You're in the kingdom of light. You are no longer in the relationship to sin that you have, that you were in under its tyranny, under its control, under its dominion. You're free. You're free. The chains are gone. The door has been ripped open. You're in a new kingdom with a new master and have new power available to you. In fact, the very resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ is yours because you not only died to sin, you rose to new life with Christ the moment you were saved. So here's the question. How can we who died to sin and rose to new life live in sin any longer? How can we say with those of Romans 6.1 and those of Romans 6.15, let us go on sinning that grace may increase? What a monstrous statement to make. The only reasonable conclusion is that we would present the members of our bodies in slavery to righteousness leading to sanctification Romans 6 19 for the glory of the God who did everything and gave everything to save us That's Romans 6. 
That's the power that unlocks the potential of holy living for you. Now, this may seem like a shift of gears here, but I want to do one more thing before we sing a song of closing. It's really perfectly in alignment with what we're talking about. We have a couple in our church, Catlin and Candace Sardina. Young couple, uh, I think about seven or eight months ago, Catlin got shipped off to Afghanistan to serve there as a soldier. But when he went, he not only went as a part of the army of the United States, he went as a part of the army of God to serve the Lord in that country that needs it. And I got an email from him and a conversation uh, with his wife last week. And he told this story. Coming out of church, a young man, a fellow soldier by the name of Castro, uh, came up to him all excited. He had just recently gotten saved. And Catlin said he felt very moved that later that he should uh, talk to Castro and offer to disciple him in the Lord. And so when he saw him, he did that, made the offer, and it was gladly accepted. And he began that process of discipling him. They met together. And in that first meeting, I think Catlin said they were having a discussion just about some basics of Christianity, talking about the, the Trinity, and that he also talked to him a little bit about baptism and the email that I got said Castro insisted on being baptized. And so Catlin worked on it and put it together. I, I think we're going to see the video here. I think they used a dumpster and lined it with something that was waterproof. Well, I mean, just what a great picture, though. God takes the dump of our life and turns it into something brand new. So he sent a video just so that we could be a part of the ministry that a member of our church is having there in Afghanistan. It's just about a minute long. Uh, I, I think maybe Adriana, is she here this morning? Somewhere maybe? The wife of Castro? I'm not sure, but I don't want to put her on the spot. But anyway, let's just take a a look in celebration at this video and be a part of the celebration here. <laughs> Good morning, Cornerstone Church. For those of you who don't know me, I'm First Lieutenant Catlin Sardina. My wife Candace and I are members of Cornerstone Church, and I'm currently deployed to Afghanistan. I'm pleased to share with you this morning the video of a young man who recently just gave his life to Jesus Christ and wants to publicly profess it in front of all of you. So, without further ado, Here's the video of Specialist Greg Castro obeying God's word to go, therefore, making disciples of all the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you guys for your prayers and I love and miss you. Can't wait to get home to you. Thank you. 
Ash. Good. I forgot to tell you one thing about that. Catelyn said that when that happened, there was another soldier that saw that happen and said, man, I got to be baptized too. And so they waited for him to get changed and they just had another baptism right there. Isn't that incredible to be a part of that? Would you stand? Let's go out in a song of celebration here. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough.